Welcome to the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast, your guide to help you manage life, money, and multiples. Each episode, host Paul Fenner, Tama Capital's president and founder, and the proud parent of four amazing children, including one set of triplets, will provide insights on successfully sustaining an active lifestyle, career, and family through comprehensive wealth management strategies, financial education, and lifestyle planning specific to parents raising twins, triplets, and more. Learn more, subscribe to the show, or connect with Paul at TamaCapital.com. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Tama may retain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. How did we go from one extreme to another with the stock market and inflation? How is inflation changing the way we go about our daily lives? Josh Brown is the CEO of Ritholtz Wealth Management and a contributor on CNBC. And these are just a few of the topics and questions we address during our conversation. Josh is a person I've been following for over a decade within the finance world, who speaks with a level of energy and plain English that cuts through the noise when it comes to financial advice. Sometimes the truth becomes an inconvenient source of advice. One of the hardest aspects of being an advisor is providing advice while truthful and in the best interest of a family, is not one that they would like to hear or accept. Josh does a masterful job of reinforcing this challenge and how critical the family advisor relationship is. Finally, Josh provides some thoughtful insights on parenting and how much closer finalities can be for parents when they least expect it. Please enjoy my conversation with Josh Brown. So Josh, most of my audience won't know who you are from watching CNBC because I tell my clients, my families don't watch CNBC. And for the most part, they don't. And for good reason, not because I don't like CNBC, because I watch you on the, on the halftime show and, and, and overtime as well. But the reason why I wanted you to be on the show was that you bring this energy in this language that I call plain English that I try to work with my families on. And the way that you come across and you bring that um, on air and in your writings, um, to me, it's just phenomenal. I've been following your work for, is it probably decades now? Uh, oh, I guess we're, I guess we're that old now. Um, but that's, that's what I really wanted to, to have you on and, and to have this conversation around what's going on with inflation and behavioral uh, emotions that are flaring up because Right now, my wife gets most of her um, financial news from Good Morning America. And for her to start asking me questions and for her to sit at a bonfire with, a, with, with four or five other you know, women in our neighborhood asking about, are we going into the recession? I'm like, yeah, it's time to really have an a in-depth conversation about this. So that's, uh, that's where we're headed. So <laughs> thanks for think, making the time to, to come on and have this conversation with me. Sure. I, pre- I appreciate it. Thank you. So I guess let's start there. Like, cause the one question I keep getting asked over and over is how did we get here so fast? It seems like we went from one extreme from everything being locked down with COVID and, you know, this boom that we had in 20 end of 2020, 21. And now we're getting, we're getting slammed with inflation, you know, five, $6 gas. I know you're, you're in New York. That's probably even worse there. Um, but what is what is your take? What have what have you been talking to 
people about when, when they ask you that question, because this is the overriding one that I get all the time. So inflation in and of itself is not the, the problem. The Fed has actually spent the la- most of the last 15 years trying to bring about a faster pace of inflation because the alternative is disinflation, which comes with its own set of problems. The real issue is that inflation, at least to the, the observer, um, has gotten out of the Fed's control. So there are a variety of reasons for that. But obviously, um, what we did during the pandemic was the right answer in the moment, but it came with consequences. And, you know, the most legitimate criticism of the Fed is that they waited too long to stop giving the markets pandemic-related stimulus. Um, Another legitimate critique is the Fed was not paying close enough attention to what – the the uh, fiscal response was from Congress and from the president, both presidents, uh, Trump and Biden. So those are all legitimate uh, criticisms. Like for me, uh, if you look at my blog from the summer of 2021, I was in disbelief that the Fed was buying $35 billion worth of mortgage-backed securities in an environment where the average home price nationally was up 20% year over year. It made no sense whatsoever. Why are they continuing to stimulate the housing market? And this is a housing market that could not find enough construction workers to actually build more houses, um, could, not, could not find enough dishwashers and microwaves and appliances to satiate the demand. Couldn't, you know, so we're in a situation now where it's obvious demand is off the charts. Money supply, what they measure as M2, had exploded. Everybody was rich, felt rich. People who never had money in a bank account in their lives all of a sudden had money. Um, And so in that environment, why is the Fed continuing to buy treasury bonds uh, to the tune of, you know, $95 a month? Why are they buying $35 worth of mortgage backs? There was no good answer. Um, the, The only answer was... We've been doing it, so we're going to keep doing it. Like there really wasn't, a, and this didn't go on for three months. This went on probably, sorry, this went on probably six months to a year longer than it should have. And where we find ourselves in now, to your point, it feels like it's almost overnight. A lot of this stuff had been building up, um, and then a, a confluence of unforeseeable events took the trend of rising inflation and sent it into overdrive. The first thing was um, China's continual um, game of make-believe about we, we're COVID-free, no, zero COVID policy, locking down Shanghai, making it so that the manufacturing and shipping centers of China could not operate as normal. So this, of course, exacerbates the price on all of the imports that America and Europe rely upon. And then, of course, the invasion of Ukraine makes it even worse. Now you've got food prices higher. I think something like a fifth of all the uh, wheat that the world consumes comes out of the Ukraine, which, by the way, was also true during the the ancient Greek Empire and the Roman Empire, believe it or not. Uh, That's a very, very important place for food Um, and, of course, oil and and natural gas. So uh, a lot of this stuff was foreseeable. The Fed having the money supply explode and not really doing much to stop that. Um, and having the labor market get get as tight as it got, et cetera. 
some of that, there was some political pressure. Um, the Fed, for example, talking about at Jackson Hole how you know minority unemployment is usually hit harder when the Fed gets too tight too soon during an expansion and trying to appease various factions and not really do what it felt was in the best interest of the overall country. Um, so the Fed playing a little bit of politics, that definitely factors in. And then some of the stuff that was completely unforeseeable. If you look at the average Wall Street strategist in December of 21, nobody's talking about Ukraine. Nobody's talking about Putin. Nobody's talking about lockdowns in Shanghai. Um, and so that's that's why we are where we are. There are a lot of people who are blaming Joe Biden because he said no to the XL pipeline. Um, those people can then help me out and explain why they have 48% year-over-year inflation in Spain. Is Joe Biden also the president of Spain? So this is a global phenomenon, and it's something that, unfortunately, cannot be fixed by switching who the president is or signing the right piece of paper. There's a lot that's going to have to happen for inflation to be tamed. Um, the good news is we are part of the way into that process, and everybody is highly focused on it. Yeah, you know, when um, I have a, I have an off-the-wall inflation example, My going back to Teresa, she, uh, she and her girlfriends were going to a concert uh, over, the, over the weekend uh, in downtown Detroit, New Kids on the Block, <laughs> shows our age, I guess, again, but- you know, they had, they had big plans. Like they were going to, you know, get a hotel room down there. They were going to go to a nice dinner, hit some bars. They were going to meet up with Donnie Wahlberg <laughs> after the show, bring him to the hotel. You yeah, really want to tell this story? Like you, you really want to go there? <laughs> I thought this was a finance podcast. Well, not, not really. That's the All surprising right. thing about the emotional balance All sheet. Right, got it, it, got it, finished. So what happened? This is the most finance we're going to talk about. So okay. they... They uh, put the kibosh on the whole thing. So they end up packing coolers and five <laughs> or six of them together, tailgate in a parking lot before the damn concert. Yeah, it's a throwback. Now it's like we're probably like <laughs> how they saw new kids on the block in the 90s. It's like yeah. we had no money then. We're not spending money now. That's and cool. I, I was talking to, and I'll say her name, Holly Sotheby. Hi, Holly, because uh, I know you listen to the show. Um, she's like, yeah. Like when we found out the price of the tickets and now that we're paying $6 or $5 gas or whatever, uh, I'm like, we can't afford that. We all have kids. Like, I don't, you may or may not know I have these triplet plus ones, but you know, everybody I, I work with or know of has, you know, multiple kids. And I just thought that was, that was eye opening. And, yeah. you know, I, I feel bad for Teresa being married to me as a financial advisor because I'm always pounding the table about, you know, spending plan, savings plan, yada, yada. But to hear it from, from somebody else that's actually a, a non-client at this point, um, I thought was really, really interesting. And who's your favorite uh, new kid? The only one I know is Wahlberg. Yeah, I like Joey. He's like the shy one. Um, I feel like he doesn't get enough credit for what his vocals add to the to when they're harmonizing. Um he he often gets overshadowed because I think he's also a few inches shorter than the rest of the guys. But I celebrate the whole new kids uh, catalog. Well, I guess they, Teresa said they they were still in relatively good shape, and she sent me a photo of all of them on stage in their uh, Boston Celtics uh, jersey. So all right, because I'm I'm a big Boston fi fan. So. <laughs> 
Hey, where were we before before oh, we went I, to I, New I, Kids I, on the Block? Because now I now I can't even think straight. I'm like, I'm in Donnie Land right now. So you're gonna have to pull me back to reality. Yeah. So we were on uh, how uh, how how my uh, my neighborhood uh, neighborhood uh, lady uh, friends were talking about inflation. Um, Listen, I I'm surrounded by I'm surrounded by people who have like really strong opinions about the current economic situation and they mostly don't know what, what the hell they're talking about. And I don't, I don't like try to educate anybody. It's such a huge waste of time. I don't debate. I'm hearing people like the dollar has been crushed and it's like, Oh, okay. But also the dollar is at a 20 year high. Um, Oh, well, I don't know. I just, like, it's really important. Like, it's really important to, I think, for your listeners to remember that inflation is really personal to people. It's almost like it's almost like religion or the love of a sports team. It's like you can't you can't actually help anybody with how they think about it. You can't really teach anyone anything because they mostly don't want to hear any facts. They have their visceral reaction to what something just cost in the supermarket. And their reference point of what it cost the last time they bought it. And you really can't like have a reasonable conversation with anyone. So don't even try. I think what you can do as a financial planner is you can remind your clients and yourself of a couple of things. The first is, you know who really got by inflation? The people who got talked out of investing for the last 10 years because this risk, that risk, the other risk. People who have been sitting in cash since the great financial crisis because they listened to the wrong guy's radio show or they subscribe to the, you know, the, the rich dad, poor dad uh, guy or whatever. Like the people who have been sitting in gold, which has gone nowhere uh, for, for, uh, since 2011. Like those are the people who are really screwed because now they have the same higher prices that we all do, but their portfolio has not kept pace their wealth has not kept pace with this new reality. Um, and so I think those are like the number one biggest victims of inflation amongst wealthy families. Now, secondarily, the second thing that we can all remind ourselves of, as annoying as inflation might be for you personally, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably have money. And I promise you, it could be way worse. You could be among the bottom 20% uh, percent of American households who have, have been spending already 10% of their income each month on fuel, gasoline, and, uh, and electric utilities. That The bill for those people is going higher. They were historically spending a tenth of their income just to fill the car, just to air condition that or heat the house, and now that number is skyrocketing as a percentage of their income. And they don't have a portfolio that's gone up over the last 10 years. S&P 500 up 18% a year on average over over 10 years. These people don't have the benefit of that. They're living check to check, month to month. I promise you, whatever minor inconvenience you've run into at Starbucks or trying to go to a concert with your friends, pales in comparison to the situation of somebody who literally has to make a choice between are we eating today or filling up the gas tank so I can get to work. So please, 
rather than spending time debating people who get their news from CNN or Fox News, remember, yeah, it's not a great situation, but for a lot of people, it's like becoming life and death and it could always be worse. Yeah, I think you you raise a really great point with that, Josh. Um, and personally, that's when that's what I've been trying to do um, is remind myself of of how fortunate we've been, and then the families that I work with and speak to as well. Um, you know, it's it's never fun to go through these corrections and see your portfolio get smashed. You know, twenty thirty percent, and you know, as I hear you guys talk about, you know, every day, and I've experienced my own. You know, within the portfolio specifically, there were several companies that I thought structurally in a post-COVID world would do okay to, to, to find a better, given some of the, the structural changes that we'd see, like a Teladoc or even a PayPal, you know, those DocuSign, you know, those companies had, I think, business models that would, you know, you know, go beyond COVID, even though you'd have that COVID spike and then things would pull back. But you know, a lot of those companies have seen their stocks go down 70, 80, even 90%. And so, you know, like I've I've communicated to my my families, those companies were never a big portion of our my portfolio. Like I always try to keep those small and have a thesis for like why we own them. But you well, know, they're much for, smaller. They're much smaller now. They're much smaller the now. But I can remember people, you know, on Animal Spirits with with Carlson and Batnick, people calling in or emailing in say, should I be hundred percent in technology stocks? Yeah. And so it's the, the, I think from a, from a financial planning standpoint with, with us, cause I know we have fairly similar style firms is just reiterating that communication strategy to our families that we work with that recessions, these pullbacks, they happen. We have a plan. And the last thing I tell people is not to panic. Like I don't tell people don't panic because that that is intrinsically the the, the wrong direction. People are emotional. Um, it, it it weighs on them, especially you know if you are in a fixed income situation. So you know when it when it comes to that, what what on the behavioral side of, of the equation um, are you are you talking about with with your audience and families. Well, it starts with it starts with um, it starts with onboarding and who you will allow to become a client and who you won't. And we're very fortunate. Our advisors, our client facing advisors, we have about twenty five or twenty six client facing advisors, and the majority of whom are certified financial planners. All of them are doing financial planning work, um, but they're in a very fortunate situation in that we don't have them running around trying to find new clients all day. We are giving them people to speak with um, at a very measured pace. And we are making it very clear that we only want great fits as clients. Nobody is being compensated for clients that onboard and offboard quickly. So there's no reason why an advisor at Ritholtz Wealth Management would take on a client who's unreasonable about market returns or, hey, just invest my money. I don't want to do a financial plan or I want, hey, let's do a, uh, let's do a bake off. I'm going to compare you to my guy at Goldman Sachs. We just, we're just, no, we have a, a, an internal, um, we have an internal saying, which is if it's not a yes, it's a no, there's no maybe. 
and you can't fix people and you can't change people. So there are certain people who just are not a good fit for financial planning and other financial planners, unfortunately, will end up with this person as these people as clients because it's hard to say no, especially when you're just beginning your career and you need, I totally understand it. Our advisors are very fortunate. They don't have to take on anyone. So it starts there. So we're starting with a clientele that read blog posts, listen to podcasts, absorb the message, understand that what we're telling them is the truth. Sometimes the truth is inconvenient. The truth at the moment is market valuations, while they've come down, are still high. Bond yields relative to history are still low. And the best answer to that puzzle, you know, lower prospective returns in the two major asset classes is um, have reasonable expectations for what you're going to get from these asset classes and save more money. Like that's the answer. Everybody wants a different answer. Oh, do I go long short? Do I do private equity? Do I... No, 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 no. Save more. I'm sorry. I know you don't want that to be the answer. And I know it's inconvenient in an environment where prices have gone up. But you ask me, how do I satisfy the needs of my plan, the investment objectives? How do I get to these goals? More stocks, more bonds. What if the answer is just, yes, more stocks, more bonds, but because you're saving more of your income and not spending it today? And while we might have muted returns from here forward on equities for the next 10 years, and we might have muted real returns and inflation-adjusted numbers for the bond market, on the bright side, you can put away more. And so if we don't average 18% a year in the S&P, which of course is not sustainable, if that is cut down to 6%, well, you put away that much more money and you're still okay. Like- that's the kind of thing we're telling people. If there's somebody that doesn't want to receive that message because they want to hear about some magical way we could pick the right stock and, and, and beat the reality of the it's, – it's, there's nothing wrong with the person. They're just not a good fit for us. So how do we have inflation conversations? Well, again, we're, we're at the starting point of we have intelligent, reasonable, emotionally well-adjusted clients who are prepared to receive the information that we're giving them. You'd be amazed at how many advisors don't even start from that point. And so what are they doing right now? You know what they're doing. They're tap dancing. They're making things up to make 20 different people feel better. Talk to four clients in a day, four radically different conversations. Oh, this guy I onboarded because I told him I could beat the... Uh, the MSCI All Country World Index. All right, let me stick with that story. Oh, this guy onboarded because I told him uh, he's not at risk at all. And we're going to focus on capital preservation. So let me have the conversation with that guy. And it's like one after another after another. I don't personally think that that scales. I don't think you could have a clientele that's got that huge of a delta in terms of what you, they think that you're doing for them, right? And I don't think you could really build a firm on, on that kind of – so it's got to start with what you're saying to that client before they even become a client. Um, and we go above and beyond in that respect, more so than probably most firms, uh, to, to really focus in on fit, expectations, what can we do, what can we not do 
um, and and what should you expect as a client of our practice, our firm, our service model, our portfolios? So that's really what I would say is the right answer to that. Um, and you know it's the right answer because of how hard it is uh, yeah. to actually do. Yeah, I, I that's a, I think that's an excellent point to finish up this this uh, this piece is that it is really hard to do, especially for younger advisors out there that are just starting in their firms or whatever. You know, I'm I'm pretty established where where I'm at, and I'm fortunate where I have that conversation up front with the families that I work with. Um, you know, again, it's still not it's still never good when you see your portfolio you know down, but to to keep that same messaging consistent and in front of people and be there to to answer answer their calls and to just quite frankly I, I'm getting more proactive and and phoning my families or sending them a text saying hey just checking in with you see how you're doing um, I had I had one of my it, it almost brought me to tears uh, one of my my families she's she's a widow now she sent me a text like last week or two weeks ago. When the markets really went down, and we were all really scared, and um, she's like, "Hey, I just wanted to check in to see how you were doing. Like, don't worry about my portfolio; it's going to be fine. Inflation, I'm not worried about." And this is from somebody that's retired. Now, granted, she, financially, she's in really good shape, but the fact is, is that she cared more about reaching out to me to see how I was doing than than anything. And that that um, I. I you know, I have great families I work with, but um, you know, I, I take a whole firm full of for, full of people like that. Well, that's rare. Um, I think I think one of the things that's interesting is that when you are going through this process of onboarding a client and you determine that they're a good fit, one of the most important things you want them to understand about your firm, like why did we just go through this whole process? Why did it take four meetings for you to get your money to us? This is the reason why. Imagine a crisis in the market. So the inflation panic of June works well for this or COVID in March 2020 or China fixing the yuan versus the dollar in September 2015. A lot of people don't remember that. The S&P fell 16% from that. Ep okay. Yeah. So any one of these. Okay. If I'm your client right? You're the advisor, I'm the client, okay? If I'm your client and you have just sat on three back-to-back -back outrageously panicked conversations with other clients, what kind of service can I expect from you at that point? Like if you just spent half your day fighting with clients about, you know, one person's mad because why didn't we sell our oil stocks before oil fell? And then another person's like, why don't we own more Zoom and Teladoc? And then another person's like, why didn't you put me in Kathy Wood? <laughs> like if you're, if that's what you're living through and then like, you gotta be fried. <laughs> I'm your, right. I'm your next appointment. And you and I are going to talk about adding death benefits to a, a, a trust or something like how, I, I can't, I know that my advisor is not in his or her right mind because they put themselves in this position where they're having these non sequitur off the wall um, battles in Zoom meetings or on the phone with clients. And then it's like, I want this person, it's like uh, going to a surgeon, right? Right after 
they uh, were in a cage with a lion. And it's like, all right, great. Now uh, take out my gallbladder. Are you calm, doctor? Like, you good? You, you want to take a beat? Okay. <laughs> so none of our clients want the rest of our clients to have the wrong expectations or to be at the firm for the wrong reason. Like, that's why if this is going to work, everybody has to be consistent about what we're doing, how we do it, what is the process, where are the limitations, what won't we do, right? We can't have Civil War tent style triage with blood splattering the walls and then expect the next client who's there to be taken care of or to be talked off a ledge or to make a change in their portfolio. Like they, they need to know that they're talking to somebody who's calm and measured and is like professional, right? So this was one of the most important things that we set up from the outset. And it benefits not just the client I'm talking to now. Everyone. But the client I'm going to talk to this afternoon, my hands aren't shaking because this was all very methodical. My partner, Chris Venn, uh, is one of the co-founders of Red Holtz. Um, one of his concepts was like, like he came in, he's like, dude, what are you doing? Your phones are ringing. Why? Your phone should never ring. This should be like a, dent, like a dentist office. Every client knows exactly when they're going to the dentist. You know your next appointment. And walking out of your appointment today, you're making your next one already six months from now. It's like our clients need a service model that they're aware of upfront. So they're not wondering when they're going to hear from you. Oh, I talked to my advisor in two weeks from now. So that's one. And then in a panic, in a crisis, it's not like, oh, when is he going to call me? I'm seeing the VIX spiking. I'm seeing, you know, crude oil just went to zero. What's going on? We are using technology to proactively decide who we're going to reach out to, not on schedule. How do we do that? We work with Orion. I could tell you the aberrant logins. Nick Majuli is uh, the, uh, the, the chief operating officer of my firm. I could tell you these six clients have logged into their account three times this week. The last time they logged in was six months ago. There's something going on with these three families. Either they want to put more money into their account or they're nervous about prices or there's some doubt about whether or not they're on course for their plan or something is going on. The advisors are getting that alert. Your clients are furiously logging in and out of their accounts. Pick up the phone. That's not an email situation. Get in front of that. So we're not doing that to like trick anybody. We, that's in the client's best interest. We want the acute need met before the client even knows it's an acute need. So we're trying to marry the best principles of behavioral investing with all of the technology and tools that are available to us today so that we can do the best job we can for each, each household. I'm actually glad that you brought up Nick because um, I finished his book, uh, Just Keep Buying, uh, a few weeks ago. And I've already ordered uh, several copies that I'm going to be <laughs> handing out to my own families. Awesome. Uh, it's a great that, book. That's, yeah, it's it's phenomenal book. So um, that along with our good friend, Brian Portnoy's Geometry of Wealth that I, I hand out like sure. candy, it seems. Well, listen, Nick's, jo Nick's job in the firm, in addition to writing the incredible post that he does every Tuesday on of dollars and data, Nick's, Nick's role within the firm is like Chris, 
myself, the various people in charge of different aspects of the firm is like, dude, how can we do this better? How can we use technology or a process or what's a logical way to do something that we're doing better and not better for what for us, better for clients, better for us, better for everybody. And uh, he's been an incredible asset uh, to the firm since the day he joined. Yeah. You know, that's actually one question that I often get with, with families because I'm a solopreneur, if you will, or solo operator is like, okay, how, how can you do all this with just one person, like just yourself, Paul? And I'm like, if, if technology wasn't where it's at today, I would have had to probably hire multiple people, you know, years ago to be able to, to service the, the, my families the way that I do today. But because of technology, you mentioned Orion, I'm not on Orion, I'm on Morningstar, but still, I, I, I know what's going on. And, um, you know, with that level of technology, it's, it's amazing, you know, how, how much more that we can do today. Yeah, no, I, I agree. It, it's enabling scale in our industry and scale is going to lead to, I think, better standardization for client service. Um, I also think like as you migrate up the chain and start talking to wealthier and wealthier families, their expectations of what they get Changes. goes higher. Yeah. So it's not, they're not looking, if you know anything about wealthy families, then you know, for the most part, they're not looking to pinch pennies when it comes to who's managing their money, who their attorneys are, who their doctors are. Like wealthy people, even stingy wealthy people um, are cost conscious and they do want to save on things that it makes sense to save on. Um, and of course, there are all these quirky idiosyncrasies about, you know, the billionaire's wife who uses coupons at the supermarket. All right, that's fine. That's cute. But in reality, rich people are rich and stay rich because they pay the best qualified people and they demand the highest amount of value from the people that they're paying. They don't sit on hold when something's wrong. The person that they need picks up the phone. And you know why? Because they're paying that person a lot of money. They, God forbid their son gets into a DUI, kills, kills some girl on a highway. Rich, rich guy in a, uh, or rich, rich woman is not like, who, who's the most affordable lawyer in town? Yeah, just give me the no, best. <laughs> this is not the mentality. That's why I laugh. I read all these like, you know, I read all the trade. I don't anymore. I used to read all the trades and read all the studies and Cap Gemini and all this shit about like, uh, oh, clients are getting fee conscious. No, they're not. No, they're not. They really aren't. They're getting value conscious. They say, all right, I get it. If I want a good advisor, I have to pay. Same as if I want a good accountant, want a good lawyer, want a good um, architect who's building you know, a, a property for me. I have to pay. But I got to know that I'm getting my money's worth, right? I got to know I'm getting value in exchange. So all the surveys are stupid, all the articles about how the business is going to be like a retainer fee business, and it's going to be wealthy families paying $50 an hour to a millennial. Um, it, it, no, it isn't. But if you want to play the game at a high level and you want to talk to $20 million and up families, you got to have what they, you got to have what they consider to be a great value proposition. You have to. And increasingly, that means spending more. And it means bringing on tax professionals, bringing on 
insurance experts, bringing on estate planning. So not every advisor wants to go there. Um, and there are a lot of advisors who are very, very confident and great at what they do. Million dollar households, they could do that all day. They know what that client wants. They can deliver it. Um, and to your point, there's so much technology in our industry that that can be done really well, really efficiently. Um, so I think that that's one of the things about our industry that's enabled really great young people to build practices at an earlier age and with more independence than they had been prior. And then the question becomes, well, now what do I do? I'm at a crossroads. Do I go work for a larger firm? Do I try to sell what I've built? Do I start hiring and training? Do I find other advisors in the same position I'm in and join forces and do some sort of a merger? There are so many options for, for advisors today. It's really an amazing time to be in the industry. Um, and technology is a very, very big part of that. Yeah, I am uh, I'm really blessed and lucky and, and glad that I made the decision some 12 years ago to do what I do. Because I, I don't know if you knew this or not about me, but my background is actually in corporate accounting, finance, and operations. So like my last role, I was CFO of a private equity company. And prior to that, I was a director of, of operational finance for a publicly traded company. And I, I built Tama while working a full-time corporate career at the same time for like seven, eight years. And That's amazing. Yeah. Um, I don't know if Teresa... I, I, when, did you, <laughs> when did you say, this is all I want to... Like, I want to make this my whole career going forward. Like, when was that decision? Well, we made the decision. When I say we because it's a family decision between oh, Teresa yeah. and I. Uh, we made the decision four and a half years ago that I would be rolling to Tama full time. I've been doing it full awesome. time since then. Good um, for you. I always wanted to do it, but you know, when you have four kids, it's they're expensive. When, when did you know it was the right thing? How long did it take for you to figure out? You know what? I'm glad I did this. Oh, um, probably within six months. Awesome. Within six months. And, awesome. And and even today, there's there there's there's this sense that I I made the right decision. And but at that time, it wasn't one that I don't know if I would have made on my own. There was there was you know other forces at work there, and it's just amazing how everything works out. And I work with a lot of people, well, you do too, that go through life transitions. I think that's the one thing we underestimate are all these life transitions that we go to go through. And one of the biggest ones is losing a job, whether you know, you're laid off, you're fired, whatever. That's a huge uh, transition to go to be, go through because our careers are right or wrong, a lot of our identities. And so I've worked with a lot of families that have gone through that because I've gone through it myself. And there's that, that sense of empathy and understanding that, okay, I know what you're going through because I've been there and it, it can be reciprocated. So it's just, it's, it's amazing. You know, I tell people, people think of what we do as the, the portfolio management side of it, but that's only a portion of what we do. The most important, the most valuable thing of what we do is all in the planning and just being there in times like this, when shit hits the fan, we're there to help calm nerves and give people a freaking hug when they need it. <laughs> well, right. So that, that's a really important point. And anybody that thinks performance alone 
um, is is a reason to hire an advisor is going to find out within a year to 10 years, it may, it may take 10 years, but eventually is going to find out that there is no investment style or strategy that's always in favor. Right. So we spent seven years watching value guys look like idiots. Idiots. <laughs> this year, they look like geniuses. They're all back doing TV interviews again. It's really funny how that happens. Um, but they had to wait it out. They had to sit it out. So if you're a financial advisor, you spent the last six years and you're, you know, the reason that your clients came to you is because you were a great growth stock picker. Well, you fooled your clients for six years into thinking that what you were doing was always going to look great. And now it's like, oh my God, we just gave up five years worth of outperformance in three months. How yeah. did that just happen? Okay. And vice versa. If you hired an advisor and they had a value orientation to how they were constructing your portfolio in 2016, and you had to sit there in 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, every year, year. trailing the market, trailing, the market, and then you fired that advisor and gave all the money to Kathy, <laughs> uh, you are finding out the hard way. So if the basis of the advisor-client relationship is anything but an emotional connection, it's probably a mistake. Yeah. Say, oh, that that guy's that guy's an asshole, but he's a great investor. <laughs> Dude, that, that ain't gonna that ain't gonna work. <laughs> uh, so I, I think that's a really I think that's a really good point. And I, one other thing I would say. So you're an entrepreneur now. So you started your own firm. You're gonna have a lot of clients who are entrepreneurs, either yeah. by choice because things worked out or the economy changed and they got laid off and they have to find something new to do. Um, you not only are a financial advisor and somebody helping them with their portfolio, but you be could become a resource to these people. Oh, you're struggling with this. Here's how we got over it at my firm, right? So we find ourselves, it's not that we hold ourselves out as we'll give you business advice, but we built a firm with 54 people uh, in nine years. We know something, right? We figured right. out some stuff. So uh, I think that's a, an underappreciated element of being an entrepreneur advisor, not just a guy working at, at Merrill Lynch. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I've actually seen, it's funny that you bring that, bring that up, Josh, because I've, I've had more and more conversations with people about that. So um, this has just been a phenomenal conversation. And I know I only have you for a finite period of time. And I stole this from, you know, our friend Patrick O'Shaughnessy. He has this closing question on his podcast. And I have one on mine, which is, I know you've got uh, a girl that's around 16 and a younger, younger boy. And so my closing question for, for everyone that has, that's a parent is what is the best thing about being a parent? Well, it's for me, so for me, the the best thing is I think like all right, this is gonna sound weird. When my kids are around and need things and need rides and need to be coached on a team, and it's always like, oh my God, it's so stressful. But but like those things happen so quickly and then they're over. So my kid is uh turned 13, my son. I coached him in every sport and now he's down to two sports. He plays, he plays tennis and basketball. He's done with baseball. I spent thousands of hours on baseball fields, not just standing there, but coaching. 
and not just coaching, but driving all over the place, travel baseball and picking up his equipment and, and hugging him when he lost the game as a pitcher and cheering for him when he, when he got a big hit and coaching his friends and driving carpools and negotiating with, with organizations and like, it's just endless. And a lot of the time it's like, oh, this is so annoying and I should be on the beach and, but then it ends and it doesn't end gradually. One summer, the coach said, here's the deal. We're not taking on any more kids that go to sleepaway camp. They're, they're, uh, they're 12 years old and the competition is playing baseball year round. So if you have kids that go to summer camp, congratulations, God bless. They can't play on this, on this team anymore. We're just, that's not what we do, we do at this age. And then that was it. The finality of that, it was just, it was over. And, you know, my daughter played softball and there's just tons of examples like that, right? Even like the last time my daughter let me take her to a movie. <laughs> like Toy Story 3 came on the other day. She was four years old. I saved the ticket stub. And I remember walking her out of the theater and her telling me the whole thing, everything that just happened in the movie and all the characters' names. And she was four. She's 16. And I can't take her to Toy Story 4. She ain't going. You know what I mean? Yeah. She's no not going. Here. <laughs> but yeah, Buzz Lightyear, whatever the new one is, she's not going with me. The thought, like just the thought. So I don't know if this really answers your question, what's the best part of being a parent? But maybe the part that I least appreciated in the early days and now appreciate more than ever. This shit ends. Everything ends. Nothing is forever. So appreciated in the moment as annoying, like picking my daughter up from Sweet 16s now at midnight and driving home seven of her friends to seven different houses <laughs> and setting my <laughs> alarm to do that because it's on a Thursday night. Like these are the things that they, it's just not going to happen again. Is it a moment for it? And it comes and you're in the moment and it feels like a whirlwind at the time. You don't appreciate every moment of it. And then just like that, it's over. And the older they get, the more doors are being closed in that hallway. And you're almost at the end. And now we're, I told you before that we started recording. Now we're going to look at colleges for her. Like I could picture the day that we're taking her to school. And setting up her door, like that's, co it's coming. It's, it's really, close. really, it's really, really close. And then the other kid is right behind her. So um, maybe that's the thing that uh, about parenting that I, I would leave with, uh, you know, the people who listen to you. And some of them have kids that are older than mine and they are nodding their heads. And some of them have kids that are babies. And I hope this is a wake up call. Uh, and I hope this is helpful. Well, Josh, this has been amazing conversation. I've uh, I've looked forward to this for for a long time since I started this podcast and knew I was going to have you on at, at one point. And uh, I can't thank you enough for for making the time and and uh, being with us today. Well, let me just say thanks for all that you do and for all the people that you help and you furthering the the profession and putting your message out there and interviewing the people that you interview. You're, uh, you're one of the good guys. And we, we love that you're uh, on, on our side and thanks for reading all our stuff. And thanks for reaching out and giving me the invitation. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks. I appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of the emotional balance sheet podcast. Please visit Tamacapital.com to subscribe to this podcast 
or to connect with certified financial planner and registered investment advisor, Paul Fenner of Tama Capital. And please join us again next time on the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. 